welcome to If You've Come This Far, a simple podcast where we aim to have authentic conversations with interesting people just about navigating life and about making the most of it. My name is Chris. And I'm Sean. Just a little bit about Men Living. Men Living is a nonprofit where we bring guys together for connection, to talk about stuff that matters, work on ourselves a little bit, and find some community and brotherhood. You can learn more about Men Living at menliving.org. If you've come this far, maybe you're willing to come a little further. On this episode, we get to spend some time with Billy Baker. Like Sean, Billy is originally from South Boston. Billy now writes for the Boston Globe, and he caught our attention with his book, We Need to Hang Out, a memoir of making friends, about the struggle of middle-aged men to maintain meaningful relationships. We talked to Billy about his research findings and his personal experiences on this front, and we also discussed boy bands, the status of newspapers in this day and age, and of course, pickleball. We hope you enjoy the conversation. I'll introduce you, uh, Billy Baker, uh, husband, father, Boston Globe columnist, and the author of We Need to Hang Out. Um, and I have to tell you, since I, I read your book, Actually, I heard a podcast you were doing an NPR or an NPR interview. I'm like, okay, I, that's an interesting guy. Then I read the book and I'm like, I, I would love to have a conversation with you someday. So I'm glad we're doing that. So, uh, so what we usually do on a men living meeting is we do a check-in. So at the start of a meeting, um, just kind of either to gauge where a guy is or maybe get to know, know each other a little bit better. So if you're okay with it, I'd like to maybe start this with a check-in. Okay. So it's um, your name where you're at, where you, where you're physically at, and then a prompt and, and I'm going to model. So, uh, Sean Emerson, I'm in Glen Ellen, Illinois. And the prompt is your favorite boy band. And so, and so for me, it's a no backstreet boys is a no brainer. I mean, I think we could look at just the number ones that they've had now new edition would be second. Okay. Andy girl. Um, but it's Backstreet Boys, without a question, and with that, I'm in. All right. So do Chris? I go next, or do you go next? Billy, you should go next, because i got to look up boy bands to even be able to name one. So oh, why don't come you on go? Now. Well, uh, all right, so I'm Billy Baker. I'm in Essex, Massachusetts, which is uh, on the North Shore of Boston in a place called Cape Ann. Everyone's heard of Cape Cod. There's another smaller Cape to the north, and that's where I am. And um, favorite boy band? I'd say in terms of like music that's going to get me moving, like it's Backstreet Boys, but like I'm, I'm a kid that grew up in Boston and the New Kids on the Block era. So I went on the New Kids on the Block cruise as part of this book. And weirdly, I'm sitting like a quarter of a mile from one of the New Kids on the Block right now. He lives just up the street from me, John Knight. And I see him around town all the time. And there's a little part of me that does this like, squee like (laughs) wait and didn't he do like like a big construction come is he the one that does the construction he's got like a home renovation show now he's one of these people that kind of his thing it's called i've watched a couple episodes it's called like farmhouse fixer it's something to do with like old farmhouses which from watching his show it's like that it seems like the opposite of charming you know like (laughs) things are like so gross that the very first episode like 
it was the most surprising uh, home renovation show I've ever seen because it was like a far, uh, like an old farmhouse with a huge, beautiful barn in the back. And what they did was fix up the farmhouse and they tore down the barn. Like they didn't, they didn't put the barn back up. <laughs> well, That's not what happens on these shows. But right. Probably, you know, they got halfway through the production. They're like, not even we have enough money to save this thing. So, <laughs> so does he do the work around town? Is he in the Cape? Cape Ann areas where he's doing the work? I think so. I see him. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I mean, I don't know him in any way. I did ambush him weirdly when I was on the cruise. Um, The, uh, there was this one day where there was just this like super long line where it was the one chance for everyone on the cruise to get their picture with the new kids. But the way it worked was you had to have five people in your group and each one of you like chose which new kid you were going to stand with. It was a group photo of five people and five new kids. So this line's like a million miles long on the cruise ship and everyone's horse trading because they all have their favorite new kid and they're trying like, I want a picture. I want to be with Donnie Wahlberg, but I got to find a group that doesn't have a Donnie yet. Right. So I'm like this free agent, right? Like I don't care. I don't even want to be in a photo and uh, somehow or another I get roped in. And they're like, and you're going to be with John Knight. And I'm like, okay. And as I'm standing next to this guy, who, I mean, it's like an alternate reality, right? Like he's, he's, I mean, just, there's a long line of middle-aged moms waiting to get a picture with him. And uh, after like, you know, I shake his hand, I'm like, yeah, I live in Essex. I live right up the street from you. And like, you could just see the like two worlds clashing in his brain where it was like one why is there a guy on this cruise? <laughs> right, right. Why, why is there one of my neighbors and I don't know him? And he was just like, as I was walking away, he's like, what did that guy just say? Like, <laughs> ever since then, I've wanted to run into him just to, to say it. And and I just see him in passing. So uh, do you think he I, would remember you? I, I Was it that I, creepy? I, I Well, to be a man on the New Kids on the Block cruise is straight up creepy because... Um, there's, I mean, it, it, it's an act of genius, but there is a whole bunch of guys who go every year just to take advantage of the fact that there are 4,000 women, mm-hmm. they're going to get a little drunk, they're a little randy, their all-time crush is, is just behind this barrier, you know, and they mm-hmm. turn around and they'll just take whatever is there. And there's a legendary group of guys from England who come every year, like they, uh, like it was a, like the first day I saw them, they were like, leaning up against the bar next to the pool like shaved fat chest you know like this is this is their moment like they, they're ready they're like they look like soccer hooligans who just like trimmed everything up <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I was gonna say that you took creepy to the to a next level but it, it sounds like those guys are uh so it, it, joey mcintyre was doing their was doing their pre-game in form oh joey mcintyre i can't even remember if i wrote about this in the book like uh there was this one night where so every night can i stop you for a minute yeah before it's because i knew we were going to go here so explain to the listeners why we're talking about the new kids Mm -hmm. the new kids cruise so i guess i should just explain my general spiel in a little bit and we'll get to the new kids so okay so yeah okay the the whole spiel so i i'm a boston globe reporter and one day i get an email from an editor uh, at the Boston Globe magazine, and, and it, 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 it contains one of the oldest lies in journalism, which is we have a story we think you'd be perfect for. And it just, it plays on your ego, and you just, you're looking around, you're like, me, amongst all these people, but I'm the perfect guy, watch this. And I, and, you know, I marched down there, but 
I know what's the oldest line in journalism. So I sit down in this office, look across at the guy, and he's like, lay it on me. And he said, we want you to write about how middle-aged men have no friends. And, you know, immediately I'm thrown into this existential crisis, you know, you know, why me? I've got plenty of friends, buddy. Like, this is a terrible story. Is this even true? And as I'm going through this, he's across from me laying out all this terrible data. Like, you know, he's got stacks of stuff on his desk. It's about, you know, the statistics on loneliness and suicide and depression, all these things, but also the, which made sense to me, but there was also all this like physical health data, which is what he was really interested in. The idea that being lonely could make you, you know, more likely to die, more likely to have a heart attack, more likely to get cancer, all these things that didn't seem to add up. And so he's, he's going through his spiel. And in my head, I'm just trying to get out of this story. It's just like, I'm, uh, no, no, I am not perfect for this. Um, that sounds like a lot of pain. And so, you know, I get up from his desk, make the walk back to my desk and, you know, I'm just quickly trying to justify my way out of it, you know? And so I'm of course going through the names of all the, the best friends, you know, it's like, oh, there's my buddy, Mark. And, you know, I see him all the time and, you know, it's like, how often do I really see Mark? Mm -hmm. You know, like, if I'm being honest, is it, is it, three times a year is that even generous you know and then I'm thinking about my my other best friend from high school this guy Rory and I'm like god I genuinely cannot tell you the last time I saw this guy and he's the guy that if you said you know put a gun near my head and said who's your best friend I would say him and it was like I genuinely don't don't know what he's up to and then I just start going through that like you know I'm like picturing like my my groomsmen you know and it's like I haven't seen a I I just mm -hmm. don't you know, what I was guilty of was it wasn't like they were they were no longer my best friends. It was just that I was just not making time for friendship in my in my daily life. It was, you know, I woke up every day and I, I think I was checking a lot of good boxes. You know, I was a good dad, good employee. You know, I, I ate my greens. I went to the gym. I did all these things. And it was like there was no time budgeted for friends because that's that felt like kind of like what you did after all the, the chores were done and like that shit is never done, right? Mm -hmm. So I sit down at my desk and I realize, you know what, I am perfect for this story, not because I'm unique in any way, but because I'm like painfully typical. And, and the typical guy, sadly, is, you know, seems to line up with what, what I was experiencing, a typical middle-aged guy. So I took on the assignment and, uh, you, you know, I, I to be perfectly honest, I did like a medium amount of work reporting it. I just kind of like everything I would read, it was like, it was sad, it was depressing. I'm still trying to like find the back door that will get me out of this. And um, what ultimately happened is like, you know, the morning comes where the stories do. So I just, I sat in the room right over here and I was like, what, what, what is it? What is it the senator wants? You want me to admit I, I'm a loser that I, I've screwed up fine. Like, and so I write this sort of this like meta article where it's like, I raise my hand and, and admit I, I'm a bit of a loser. And I tell the story of being conned by this editor. And I fully expect the Globe magazine is gonna go, ha ha, nice try now, now go be a journalist, you know, and stop <laughs> trying to, you know, but like think out loud, but instead they publish it. And it became the most popular article in the history of the Boston Globe. And I mean, I've been, I've been throwing stuff at a wall for years <laughs> you think sometimes you, this is going to be the one you know or that you know and it's like this article which had this really long wordy title it was something like 
the biggest threat facing middle-aged men is not smoking or obesity, it's loneliness. Viral, right? And next mm-hmm. thing you know, me, the guy who desperately wanted to get out of having anything to do with this issue, haven't even admit my complicity in it. I'm the dude on NPR talking about male loneliness, right? I'm the guy getting, you know, booked on podcasts, all these things. And I felt, I felt a little over my head, you know, I felt like a bit of a imposter syndrome like no you need some psychologist on there you know like I, I ended up doing uh, some things with uh, Vivek Murthy who was at the time the Surgeon General of the United States mm-hmm. and his like if you remember like when I was a kid the Surgeon General took on like cigarettes right he put this big warning on it was like they all kind of have their thing that they're they're trying to get out there he was trying to get out this that there was this loneliness epidemic that was particularly affecting men and just he wasn't getting much traction because it's not a sexy issue. It's the kind of thing that clears a room. Next thing, I, I write this silly, like jokey story and it gets this issue going. Mm-hmm. So the next thing I know, I've got uh, people sort of circling saying, you should write a book. You should, you know, you should do something with this. And it was like, okay, I, I'll take on this project, but I'm not, I'm, I don't want to write a book about loneliness because when this article came out and it went viral and I heard from men around the world, no one was asking me for more evidence of the cure. I mean, more evidence of the cancer. They weren't like proved that this is a thing. Everyone understood intuitively. The question was like, well, what's the cure? Mm-hmm. And it seems like the simplest answer in the world, right? Like the cure for loneliness is friendship, right? But what I actually set out to try and figure it out the book, what the book chronicles is this kind of roller coaster where I mean, initially I went into my past, I thought it was like a journey to like repair, you know, these things and, and get the band back together. Ultimately, it became the realization that I needed, um, you know, I'm, I'm someone that, and this seems to be a typical story as well, like I no longer live where I grew up, I'm fairly close. But you know, like if I if I wanted to have a healthy friend life, if I wanted friendship to be a part of my daily life, I needed to make new friends. You know, I had to I had to make new b- best friends essentially. There were lots of guys I knew, you know, and I thought it would happen more organically like, you know, the the dad I say hi to on the sidelines, you know, I, I thought, you know, and we might say, "Hey, we should grab a beer sometime." And then we both go home and, you know, the, that never happens. Uh, ultimately, I had to put in some work towards it. And now, let me circle back to why I was on the new kids on the block cruise, which was I kept hearing when I first began reporting the, the original article, I just kept hearing repeated this fact that women were better at friendship than men. And I, and I believed it because I'm, I'm the sort of guy that believes almost everything when they say a woman's better at it than a guy. <laughs> you know, I'm like, probably, right? I'm not going to argue that, right? So, um, but it, uh, I'm approaching the story as a, as, a, as a journalist, you know, and it's like, I got I to do a little bit of research. But what, what does that even mean, right? Like, I mean, I, I've, I've been staring at women my whole life. I can dump a bunch of studies into this book and, and I certainly did, but it was like, I feel like I, I wanna like eavesdrop on women when they don't know I'm there. And the biggest thing you'd always hear about like what's great about female friendship is this girl's trip. It's held up as like, oh, like the greatest thing in American friendship is this girl's trip. I think they all go to Nashville, right? Mm-hmm. That seems to be the thing. So. Anyway, I knew if I went on a girl's trip, it would stop being a girl's trip, right? It'd be, it'd be like some sort of performance for the, the reporter who's writing a book about why men suck at friendship. And then randomly, I heard that the new kids on the block had a cruise. 
so stupidly in my head, I was like, I, I'm going to go on that cruise and those women are not going to pay any attention to me. They're going to behave as if they're not being watched by a man. And if I go on there, you know, with my like pith helmet and my monocle and I stare, you know, really focus in, like, I wonder if I might take away some, like my, I kept thinking, like, I felt like, um, like a little kid, like I was over at the girl's cabin and I was trying to find out some intel that I was going to run back to the boy's cabin and be like, you wouldn't believe what they do uh -huh. when we're not there, you know? And so that was my idea. I'm not sure I had any grand, um, I, I gained any sort of new knowledge as much as I appreciated things I already knew, you know, mm -hmm. it was like they, uh, I mean, I, I, I'd often think about what the reverse would be like if it were just 4,000 guys on a ship, right? Like, I mean, it'd be like, there'd be a fight, you know, there'd be, there'd be all sorts of chaos. And instead they like danced together and, and you know, drank together. It was all like this, it, it felt like a, a you know, I, I, I go into the science of this thing called collective effervescence. And, and I felt like that's what I was watching with them. And guys can achieve it sometimes, you know, you're at you in a sort of safe guide way, you know, like you, you have no problem turning around and high-fiving the guy at a sporting event when your team mm -hmm. scores a goal or whatever, right? Like that's our, our group hug. And then we go back to like sitting down being tough guys. I'm like, you know, I'll fight you if you get in my way, you know, like, uh, so um, anyway, long story short, that's how I came to horrify John Knight on the new kids on the block cruise. Well, and you got to see the new kids for like three nights in a row. So that was an added bonus. I guess, so. yeah. <laughs> and, and I love. Did you dance? Did you dance? Oh, I, I, you know, like I, 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 I gave into it. You know, like yeah. I, I, I was, I was watching a lot, but like there were moments where like I was not allowed to be as anonymous as I would have hoped because right. I mean I think all four thousand of those women had to at one point or another come up to me and be like, "Why are you here?" Like, you know, like they're not shy. Like, are you with the, what are, why are you the only guy in the audience right over here? Other than the fat British guys, you right. know, like, uh, so, um, but it, uh, I, yeah, I had some fun and uh, yeah, I, I get, I get, it was nice to kind of like, it's always nice when you get to the, I mean, you know, that there's that phrase like dance, like no one is watching, right? Yes. Like, yep. right. You can really get to that, like, you know, and Often it's like an alcohol induced moment, but right. you know, you, you get there, you know, it, it, and so I, I again, I, I felt like, you know, it, it, sometimes at journalism, you almost need like a, a gimmicky hook for, for, or a theme or something. So mm -hmm. I knew I needed a chapter where I wrote about women's friendships. And I knew, as I wrote in the book, the only thing I really know with absolute certainty about women is that they don't want a man speaking for how they, they feel or think or, or should feel or think. And so it was dangerous territory to get into, you know, like uh, there are many books about female friendship. I'm not sure there were many about male friendship. So I, I had to stay over there, but I thought I just needed to visit the women for a little bit. And I will say this, I'm guilty. Like I'm the guy who's the poster child getting the word out on how men are going through this loneliness crisis and all that, but so are the women as well. You know, like it's not an exclusive. You know, it's funny because dancing like there's no one watching is a, is a little bit, at least in one way, like vulnerability. It's, it's, even though you know, it's good for you, you can't just decide to do it right. Like the conditions have to be set up. And so you did some work on that too, right? Like with your Wednesday uh, meetings, I mean, I don't know if that's exactly what you had in mind, but on some level, it's like you were trying to create some conditions where you might all experience some of that collective effervescence. Um, and is that project still ongoing? 
Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, um, oh, it's great now. Like, and, and, you know, like it's, it's like anything to do with guys. It's it's like Mm -hmm. big moments and, and, um, and it's troughs. It, uh, in, in the summer, so what, what happened is it went, it's gone through many iterations, but during COVID it essentially became a, uh, like a campfire gathering, you know, and really like, uh, how big can we make this before the cops get called? You know, Mm -hmm. like it was really like some, obnoxiously large bonfires but there you know like I'd have these moments around the fire and it'd be like I'd feel like an idiot just in the sense that we'd be having so much fun and it's like did I really have to go on this multi-year journey and write a book to realize that guys just want to hang out around a roaring fire and act like children you know like I'm pretty sure the cavemen knew this right like uh so we did that in the summer it 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 seems to be more of a uh, a movable feast in the sense that like uh maybe it's Tuesday on someone's boat or, you know, it's Friday morning, you know, whatever it might be. But in, in the colder months, which sadly, well, you guys know where you live that, that last uh, 10 or 11 months of the year, uh, it seems to now be a uh, campfire group, but it, it definitely in, in now that the book is out, there's definitely, um, we're adding to it, you know, cause like people are like, you know, there, there were a dozen guys originally and feels like, you know, someone will read the book and be like, wait, are you one of those guys? Is that you? Are you the Kevin they're talking about? Like, can I come? And it's like, of course you can come, you know? So we are, uh, yeah, I, it, it's the be- best decision ever. But actually you, you had said something earlier about being vulnerable. I feel like that was, um, if I had to put my finger on a key to this journey, it was simply being willing to be vulnerable sometimes, you know, like uh, it's, it's, it's not a cool guy move to try and make friends, you know, like we, we can all smell it on people. They're coming on a little strong, you know, they're like, you know, they, they show up with the six pack at the door of the month, you know, like, ah, I, don't, I'm, I don't know if I'm ready for this, you know, and sometimes I was that guy, but I feel like, you know, vulnerability is a position I feel like I was trained not to put myself into, but I did it willingly many times during this journey. And anytime I did the universe, like rewarded me, you know, like, uh, when I, you know, I tried to gather my high school class back for a skip day again, you know, mm-hmm. and that was like, you know, I'm sitting awkwardly in a field just hoping anyone's going to answer my silly Facebook invitation. And that worked well, you know, I invited a dozen guys to a, to a barn one night and don't really tell them what's up. And then I lay this spiel on them. I mean, tell them this like long journey I've been on and why you're here and what you have in common and all that. And like, I was rewarded, you know, and it, uh, you know, in terms of like being vulnerable and putting effort into a relationship, those are things that we talk a lot about and accept as part of romantic relationships. But I think it's also a part of, you know, uh, platonic relationships as well. And, mm-hmm. you know, like, uh, you know, I'd referenced having a best friend uh, that I uh, hadn't seen in like a year, you know, like the first thing I did when, when the original article came out, I sent it to him and he said, oh, this is going to make what I'm about to tell you even worse. But I I moved to Vienna in Austria, you know, and so I, in a very vulnerable move, was like, I'm getting on a plane right now and I'm going to Vienna. We're going to we're going to solve this, you know, and and I wrote about it in the book. It felt like I was in one of those romantic comedies where the guy's running to the airport to get the girl, you know, and but it was like, you know, I'm okay with it. And I saved that friendship and and uh, and we're, you know, super strong today. And, and so, yeah, it was, it, you know, it was all these things that I think I, I just wasn't doing. I wasn't, you know, 
I don't want to be in a vulnerable position all the time, but I, I wasn't willing to be, I wasn't putting in any effort. And I, I think I was just like, I don't know. I was just guilty of thinking this was how it is, you know, mm. like this is just this, how it goes for, you know, you're, you're a dad, you're, you're a, you're a good worker, you're providing, you know, all this stuff. And like, yeah, I guess we'll catch up again when we're retired. Right. Like, you know, play some golf or something like that. Uh, Cause you know, every weekend's crammed full of kids activities or whatever it might be. So um, I think uh, the best gift I gave myself was being sort of forceful about ramming friendship onto the calendar alongside the other important things, recognizing it as an important thing and making the time for it. Well, the, the other, just on, or along vulnerability, the other thing that really captured me in the book is as you were putting together the invitations for the first bond meeting, I think, you, you made this choice of, I'm not going to give the invitations to everybody. I want to give them to guys I don't know, um, which was, which was, I think, very difficult. Um, but it's something you were very intentional about. Yeah, it was, I, I you know, because I sat in the room over here with just names on post-it notes and kind of moving them around and realized that like, um, some, some guys I knew fairly well, like, yeah, I didn't want to hang out with them all the time, right? right. Like, and then there were these guys where I'd only met them once or twice, and I felt that spark. And again, that's something we were comfortable using in a romantic relationship. Mm -hmm. But like, you know, something, you know, with guys, sometimes it clicks. I mean, even my, my female friends, you just have it or you don't, right? And, uh, and uh, so, yeah, I did that. And actually, it weirdly, I wouldn't say it created issues, but there was a little bit shortly after I sent out those things there were definitely some like women that I'm like good friends with who they were like why didn't you invite my husband and it was like mm -hmm. and I remember it happened impromptu but I said to as I felt cornered and I said I've known him for like three years and I don't have his phone number and it was like oh yeah okay you know like we, we he would say yeah he's, he's a great guy you know and I would say the same about him but like you know like we we I don't know. It just wasn't there. So in, in that moment, she went, okay, yeah, no, you're right. He, you're, but if anything, I think um, me starting my own little thing, some other little things started around us. Like there's other guys that like, you know, we're like, you know, like ancillary. And now there's like a crew that plays like tennis every Saturday morning. And, you know, like they invite us and we say, you should come to the thing, but it's kind of like, yeah, no, you guys have your Wednesday night, we're at the Saturday morning tennis, like, you know, it's, but as long as everyone's doing it, it's like, uh, we're, you know, we're raising, you know, everyone's vote. Mm -hmm. So, so I, I think, well, actually, I should say this. I think Billy, you and I are close to the same age. Sean's a lot older than we are. Okay. Um, uh, how, old is, how old is Sean? <laughs> I'm kidding. 58 tomorrow. 58. Whoa. I'm 51. In any case, we all grew up in 70s and 80s. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I'm 76. So yeah. Okay, there you go. I'm 70. Okay. So, um, so and, and I think we were all, and there's keywords that get thrown around, like toxic masculinity is, is, is a popular one, but I feel yeah. like we were conditioned or trained against being vulnerable. So, um, and whether or not we can draw a straight line from that to us being not that proficient at maintaining meaningful friendships is one thing, but does, have, have you looked in at all to like, or, or have, have either of you, have you looked into, well, are we doing a better job of, of, of raising young boys along this? Before Bill, Billy answers, I want to append to your, <clears throat> append to your question. Cause Billy, one of the things that I was thinking about in reading your book is, so I grew up in Lowell, I was born in Lowell, Mass. Uh, um, 
I thought I caught a slight Boston accent coming out of you. Slight Boston well, I've been, accent. I've been, I've been, I went to Holy Cross in Worcester, and okay. and but I've been out here for thirty five years. You're um, still a masshole, though. You yeah, can't, can't. exactly. Um, for that. And and my son, who who was born in two thousand, has been able to experience thirteen, fourteen. New England championships. Oh fuck! Um, and it, so I just had to throw that in. But but <laughs> what? But it occurs to me when I think about bastions of traditional masculinity, mm. I think about South Boston. I mean, yeah. I have friends from Southie, and and so the people listening that may be in the Midwest don't maybe have an appreciation for for South Boston. Do you want to wrap that into your kind of perspective yeah. on this too? So I grew up in Southie and, and you know what I think a lot of people do have some idea because for a while there like every movie made was filmed in Southie right like it just it, it just wouldn't end so I think you know that it, as it relates to this conversation uh, like the, the, the masculinity thing I mean like th there was the physical tough guyness of growing up in a place like that but also the sense of humor is very aggressive. It's, it's about taking you out at the knees. Like, oh, you think you're too good for me, right? Like, you know, any any moment you go up, like, here they come. Like, you're going down in a second. So that's not a, uh, that's not a sort of uh, a, a, a we feeling, a, a like yes and place. But I also think like to go back to the idea of like, you know, the era we grew up in and are we doing better now? I mean, you know, whether they were, they were, directly tied to world war ii or the children of world like there was definitely a sort of tough guy stiff upper lip keep you you know like some people saw some awful things and kind of came home and smiled through the 50s mm -hmm. and if you think about what was on you know your uh your saturday afternoon matinee movies i mean it was clint eastwood and john wayne and you know all these sort of you know loner type tough guys and i think that the kids today, I, I think, yeah, I think the big risk is maybe we're going a little too soft, right? Like, mm -hmm. I mean, like any whiff of what of, of competition gets labeled as bullying. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of, um, yeah, there's a lot of fear about how politically correct and woke and all this stuff we might be. But I think on the friendship side, um, I, I see, so I have an 11 year old son and my oldest child, and I'll see him do things like that are so like rooting for his friends or like, you know, like, uh, oh, he'd really like this. I'm going to buy it for him. And, and like, it's like, I don't think I was a jerk as a kid, but that just wasn't how like you, you kind of behave towards your friends. But uh, again, I grew up in Southie, which is like not a real test, you know, shouldn't be compared uh, to normal life, you know, Southie in the, in the 70s and 80s and 90s was uh there's a reason that um that it seems to have replaced uh new york italians as like the sort of white bad guys in the movies you know like and uh that, that are sort of likable in that you know rough around the edges way right like uh, mm -hmm. but uh yeah no i have great hope for the sort of social aspects of youth today i think it's like i mean you know in the schools they have like social and emotional teachers right like that's their like job right like i mean like his best teacher seems to be his health teacher and i'm like my health teacher was like 
you know, the, the football coach who didn't want to be there and was just waiting for his retirement and was just like, here's some condoms, kids, right? You know, like <laughs> now they actually engage with these these things to do with our health. And it's it's remarkable, you know, like uh, so I don't know. What so you guys are both a little bit older than me. I mean, what do you think was the norm of masculinity that was that was stamped on you as a kid? That's a good question. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm, I, I feel embarrassed that I hadn't thought about it before I asked you the question, but um, uh, I, I don't know. I just feel like it's maybe it's a multi-generational shift. Like this is not something you can flip, flip a switch and we start to, notwithstanding the fact that we have social emotional learning as sort of a foundation of the way we're teaching kids these days, but most of that shit I think happens at home. And I think it just takes a long time to, to, to process. Um, Springfield, Ohio was not Southie, but we were still, we were still doing the same shit, acting the same way, yeah. building big ass bonfires, you know, and luckily no one got hurt. I don't know, Sean, what would you say? Yeah. I mean, I, I think despite the fact that there's social emotional learning in the schools, I think there's still a lot of conditioning. I mean, just look at the news every day to fill your lane. I mean, despite the fact that there's, there's a lot more that our kids see that we didn't see when we were growing up as it relates to gender and sexuality and all the rest. Right. I, I still think there's a lot of lane, you know, lane driving going on. Um, and, and, uh, you know, I personally, I don't, I don't think that's great. I mean, I think it should be about, you know, being the best human being you can be. Yeah. And, um, and I think that's what they're trying to do in the schools with social emotional learning. Cause I've got some experience in that, but, but it's, uh, you know, I don't know how deliberate you can be with it. I don't, I mean, is Charlie, is he the, your oldest? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And does he, is, I mean, does he like the social emotional stuff? I, you know, I can't say I've discussed it with him. I'm just glad yeah. it exists. You know, yeah, right. I still, you know, it, um, I'm probably at the tail end of it, but I am, I am definitely like uh, the person he listens to the most, you know? Mm -hmm. So I feel like I, I, I can have that um, daily impact with him. Uh but it, yeah, it's just, I don't know. It's, a, it's such a, uh, we could go down this rabbit hole all day, but sure. the culture yeah. right now, I, yeah. I, I don't think it can, it can stay this way for, uh, there's, there's some sort of rebellion as to like how touchy feely we are with everything. I mean, mm -hmm. I recently, you know, I've always been a, uh, uh, on the sort of more fun side of journalism. And uh, I recently, for the first time in my career, took on a beat, uh, which was, I said, I want to focus on the outdoors because it feels like the only place I cannot offend anyone anymore, mm -hmm. right? Like I'm writing about fishing. Like, you know, if people, and that's a lie, someone's going to get offended about fishing, you know? But, <laughs> but, like, Some dude. <laughs> Well, you got in a fight with some bird watchers, didn't oh, you? Oh, well, that too. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, no, I'm picking fights, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> I, I essentially, like, something special happened in my career sort of during COVID, which was I'd always been like the, uh, a features writer, you know, I'd write, I'd write fun stories, but um, when the world shut down and you couldn't leave your house, it, it was like, well, what am I going to do? Um, and so I just started writing, like, humor pieces which it's a, a lame thing to say it'll be like i'm going to do humor writing to actually like try and make someone laugh but it came like an it was like a new challenge i started like reading the great humorous and realizing like 
oh, you need to be real deliberate about this. You can't reinvent the game. You need to have a setup and a punchline. If you actually want to physically make a human being laugh, like that's how, that's how you do it. So I started doing that. And then when COVID, when the lockdowns lifted, it was like, all right, I can't just stand here and, and tell jokes forever. It's really hard and I'm not quite that good at it, but I think I can tell funny stories. So my career evolved into where I, I basically, it, it's almost like gonzo journalism in a way. It's like, I go do something and then I write a funny story about it and I'm doing it with the intent of humor. So I'm creating almost like deliberate blind spots in a way. Like, I mean, you know, I, I, I enter a bird watching competition but I don't know anything about birds and I ask for the hardest assignment, you know, like, so like it, it's gonna go wrong. I uh, like, I mean, I'm literally, I spent a day writing about trying to catch a, I want to catch a 50 pound striped bass. Like it's like something people spend their whole lives doing. So I just, <laughs> I just went to the Cape Cod Canal with these experts. It was like, you know, it was doomed, destined to fail. And, and it certainly did. And like yesterday, I spent the day reporting where I hung out with this guy that just, he, he sits near this really treacherous uh, underpass on a bridge where boats crash into it all the time and he just films it all day long and I'm, <laughs> and I, and I'm like and it's because like it'll be funny to write about but it's like I, I I I get why this is appealing right like you're just kind of mad at everyone for having a boat you know like you know who do you think you, that, that's the old selfie humor like I'm gonna catch you out at the knee <laughs> you've got a million dollar yacht well you just crash into that bridge I mean, you know, like, <laughs> well, so I feel like for the benefit of podcast <laughs> listeners we should explain yeah. that you put air quotes around your description of that as reporter um, yeah. as you were sitting there but that that's hilarious and everyone does like to see boats crash i mean um, i'm running a racket right now i'm no like I, I don't even know if i what i'm doing anymore is journalism like it's really like and you know what it's as in the year or so that i've been doing these sorts of things i think i've received more like positive emails and then in like the 15 years that i was writing mm -hmm. features for the globe mm -hmm. like people people love it and i think it's uh in a weird way i don't want to get too far off topic but like um there's something honest about trying to make someone laugh. And, and I don't think that uh, people think of the, the media as, as honest anymore. So like, there's something like, all right, you earned it. That guy, he made me laugh. He, he wrote a stupid thing about bird watching. I'm, I'm, I'm okay with it. Whereas everything else feels like, I think, I mean, you know, when I was entering journalism, we were raised on this like myth of objectivity and that's where we're striving towards. Like, ain't no one believing that anymore, right? So like we see right through it. Whatever, whatever story you're telling me about another person, like, ah, you, you got some issues you're bringing into this. I can see them now, we're savvy media consumers. Whereas if I sit there with a guy who films boats crashing into a bridge and i admit i love this shit right, right. that's honest, that right. honest right. you know like right it's wrong but i love it and so do you you know yeah, at least i can trust this guy right exactly yeah. exactly yeah um I, I there's a question i was going to ask you at the end but but now seems like a good time um uh so I recently went back and watched, you know, you guys probably know that that huge Brene Brown TED talk about vulnerability that's got like 50 million hits. And she jokes in there about about whether she was going to be promoted for that TED talk as a, a researcher or a storyteller. Um, and she's obviously oh. primarily a researcher. But uh, the reason that made me think of you, Billy, is because, I mean, for her, I would have described her as a researcher who's good at storytelling. Um, 
I thought your book was really good at telling the story of a lot of research, mm-hmm. and, you know, and I, and I would say I'm, I'm kind of bearish on, on research, okay. <laughs> uh, not in a dumb way, but like you could write really good research that if no one ever reads it, it's worth worthless. Right. So yeah, I'm guessing that a lot of what you wrote about has gotten more hits since the book came out that, that it, that it did before my question after that long winded sort of preface, are you, are you going to write more on the subjects of loneliness, friendship, love, et cetera? I, I do, no, I don't think so. In, in a way where like, I mean, I kind of own it in, in the book and I, I own it like, I was here to solve my problems and like, mm-hmm. and I, and I kind of did, like, I got other problems I got to solve and I, I'm going to write books about that, you know, like, uh, but um, yeah, it, it's a weird thing because like, um, like the guy was when I started this journey and the, the guy I am now are, are, are very different in this, in this one area. And um, it's weird even uh, to get booked on things now where it's, it's, I mean, it's, we're like a year and a half from the last, from when I finished, you know, the final word on the story, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it, it takes about a year before it actually gets published, but um, it, yeah, it, it's a way like because I still feel a little like when I get I use a phrase imposter syndrome earlier when I get like booked in that capacity like someone might book a Brene Brown right but Brene Brown is a PhD in her thing she's a special she can cite these studies you know no problem whereas I found those studies because I was looking to fill a hole and like why mm-hmm. is this why isn't this whatever but I, I'm not uh, I don't have I don't even have a great memory to bring it up. You know, a lot of times I'm on like a real serious news show and they, they bring up uh, like the study and they'll go, what was that number? Was it 49 or 50? Flipping through the book underneath it. And it's like, I, I, but my thing was like, I, I, I knew setting out my goal was I want to write a book for the sort of guy that doesn't read books. Right. Mm-hmm. Like uh, it's a tough audience I'm trying to reach. Right. Like, uh, and the the so right from the get-go it was like I know I need to tell a good story and I need to hide the learning you know mm-hmm. like it needs to feel it needs to feel natural I even kind of hit a point in the book where I'm like oh, oh all right enough with the studies right like I got to trust my god I got to take some actions but it uh the 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 thing about it you know and, and I I'd said earlier how you know the people I heard from weren't like asking for more proof of the cancer but the proof of the cancer was like, there was so many piles of it. I, I, I didn't want to hit you over the head with it, but it was like, also this and also this and also this. Like I'm currently, um, so I'm in my bedroom and uh, I just read a book called Breathe, which is basically an argument for breathing out of your nose for nasal breathing. And so I have tape right here that I put on my mouth at night, just a little bit to force me to breathe out of my nose. I bring it up because I've now become that annoying guy who's going around telling everyone should breathe out of your nose and <laughs> off all these 12 great health breathe, you know, like, and I was at the gym this morning. I wore breathe, those bright strips, you know, for the first time I'm like, Oh, I'm like, I'm like killing people with the studies I'm citing where they're like, yeah, okay, I'm not taping my mouth when I sleep, buddy. You know, like, it's like, no, it'll change your, it'll change everything. Like, uh, so why, why did you pick that up? I mean, I'm familiar with the book. Why are you reading? I, it? I heard him on a podcast. Yeah. Aren't podcasts the best? Like, I yeah. mean, it's like you can get the Cliff Notes version of something. It's like, do I know all I want to know, or do I? Am I actually going to read his book? And I've been on a lot of podcasts, and I'm totally fine with if people are like, 
have no desire to pick up my book, but instead they pick up their phone and, and call their buddies. Like, that's great. Like, I, I, I never need to hear it. I believe it's happening. I do sometimes hear it, you know, that people say, I heard you on a thing. And then the next thing I know, I, uh, I was getting the band back together. But um, that breath, yeah, I heard him on a podcast and uh, I, I love a good personal project. You know, I like that one was like, oh, all right. I just need to stop breathing here and start breathing here. Like, I can do this. I can, I can do this on, you know? <laughs> And I mean, having said that, you know, I'm the asshole at the gym this morning with these breathe right strips on. I was doing this workout where we had to go out and run every now and again. And I felt like I was choking on my own. I could like, <laughs> it's so hard to just breathe out of your nose. I was like, okay, fuck, like, fuck this. I'm just going to breathe out of my mouth. I'm done. Yeah. Good experiment. <laughs> yeah. But it, uh, I'm trying, I'm, I'm trying to make gains. So, uh, but yeah, I, I love a good little, like, I mean, there's a reason you reference Brene Brown and I know Brene Brown, uh -huh. like we all love these like little, like, you know, I wake up every morning and my wife, God bless her. She's down there like drinking coffee. She just has a look on her face. Like, what is it today? And I'm like, all right, here's what I'm, all right. Uh, I need more probiotics in my life. Right, right. <laughs> like, some ridiculous little micro goal that I'm not going to meet, but you know, at least I feel like I'm, I'm striving today, you know? It's almost, it's almost in this day and age of, of technology and the ability to self-publish and the ability to put out your own podcasts and whether or not anyone listens, listens to them. It's like, I mean, even if you take happiness by itself, you've got the Yale class, you've got the UCLA group. I mean, happiness itself is becoming like a cottage industry and people all over are sort of being elevated to the status of expert on happiness or expert on nose breathing or whatever. Sean and I are both really grumpy about the proliferation of, of frameworks for this and frameworks for that. Um, so, okay. I mean, you know, and we're not, I'm, I don't know, we don't, we don't object to them. But we just like, you're just, okay, you're just going to change the four words and you're going to create your own matrix. Come on. Yeah. Or, or you have to have eight of this or 15 of that. And I judged because you got to sell a book. What if it's only like one or two things and then just be done. I mean, just love people and maybe that's it. And then just yeah. be done. But in Why the do I have to do yeah. these other 12 things? It, it, it's it's funny because when, you know, I, I, I wrote a book through a major publisher and it's like a big deal for them. And they're like, they wanted, uh, you know, like uh, me to be like media ready, like media ready, bro. I've been on the other side. I've been doing the interview for, I got this. And then when I started doing these interviews, it was like, oh, right. Like I'm babbling like a moron. I'm supposed to have like my five points that I need to hit on here. And it's like, you know, the takeaways and, and weirdly, all these people coming into my life like experts. My brother would be like, "You gotta, you gotta mention the velvet hooks. You gotta like, you know, people need to associate this with you and this with you." And you know, like you'll hear weird things like, "You should wear the same shirt in every interview." And it's like, uh, "Oh, okay." You know, like, so they just be like, "Oh yeah, no, I, I get it now. That's uh, that's the guy." Um, but like, I don't know. One of the best things about uh, podcasts, I feel like, is the uh, this sort of. The, the the honesty of the production value right mm -hmm. like it's just sort of like yeah these are just people talking on it yeah. you know and it uh like i was so skeptical of the whole joe rogan thing because i was like really joe rogan is like the number one guy and and then i'd look and i'd be like that's a two and a half hour interview like what well, i'm not like driving in new york today like i don't have that much time but sure enough, I realized like I've started listening and I get the appeal because it's like when someone like the, the breath author, James Nestor, mm -hmm. that's where I heard him. 
when, when you're into it, it's like, I want to hear you for two and a half hours. I want you to go through everything I kind of need to know about this and a little bit of off the side bullshitting, you know, whatever it is to make it feel like a conversation. And I also, I often wonder like, are podcasts so popular just because we're all like lonely and miss in like, we're, we're willing to listen to other people hanging out, you know? Like, yeah, right. That, yeah. a club, that's a clubhouse is the best example of that i mean clubhouse are people just hanging out talking aren't i mean for the most part what, i, I don't know what that is what, what is clubhouse so clubhouse now is another unicorn billion dollar valuation it's as i understand it, it is audio based people just talking sometimes people will do presentation but it would it if I have it right, it was an exclusive kind of club. So a lot of celebrities, a lot of athletes were there. And so people wanted to be a part of the conversation. Uh Um, And, and, and there'll be imposters coming, uh, people trying to replicate it as well. Well, well, what you guys are doing, which is great. And I wrote about this in the book. uh, They, uh, so when there are, there are some studies that I did stuff in, because it was like, holy shit, this is fascinating. One of them was that the idea that, uh, three is the perfect laughter group and four is the perfect mm-hmm. conversation group. So like, if, it, if I were just being interviewed by one of you, it would be a more serious conversation. But the fact that there's three of us here, it feels more like, more like a fun party. And, mm-hmm. and if there were four of us, I think we'd be waiting our turns to make our like dramatic point. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. like I'm, a, I'm only gonna get the mic uh, every now and again. So I need, mm-hmm. I need to put on my best NPR voice and, and deliver something. I saw you mention that someplace and I thought to myself, fuck, we're going to have to try really hard to be serious on this, on this podcast because there's only three of us, but uh... no, three, three is the laughter group four is yeah. the, the, the serious conversation group. So you guys are good, you know, and I get it. Do you like ever since I, I learned that it's like, I, I would always feel weirdly like I wasn't doing the right guy thing where if I was just with one other guy and we're supposed to like make eye contact and do these, like, it would feel a little like awkward, you know, but if there were a third person there, all of a sudden, like I just a million times calmer, like oh, yeah. it, it just worked better. But I'm also not like, I don't want there to be 50 people around, you know, I, I like it, you know, I want to get a chance to talk. I want to hear you talk. I, I want to make some sort of connection. But. Well, and that's an interesting point, because I think, you know, one of the things that we're actually trying to do within this group, this men living group is, you know, it starts with, you know, come to a big meeting if you want. And then we have this thing that we call a small batch, which encourages guys to get together in smaller groups, single digits. And then, you know, can you find somebody that you want to connect with even more on a one-on-one basis and just kind of increase intimacy. And some people may want to come in and just do the one-on-one to begin with. Giddy up, go do that. But can we can create different environments for guys wanting to connect with other guys is really kind of what we're trying to do. And it doesn't matter if you're in Chicago or Boston or San Diego, can we utilize the technology to do that? Um, Yeah. I mean, this is fun. I, I'm not blowing smoke up your ass. I've done a million of these interviews and this is probably the most fun because I feel like I, I like wasn't even sure. I was like, do, do, uh, like, should I get a beer or is this a serious thing? You know? I thought about it too. Yeah. Uh, and I haven't yeah. even said who my favorite boy band is yet. So we've oh, still yeah, got that to look forward to. No, no, I, no. I need to keep you guys on track as the interviewer. Cause, uh, <laughs> um, well, I have quite, so how, tell me your story. Like, tell me what this, uh, how, how you got to where, where this is a thing now. Chris, why don't you, because you've been around longer than me, why don't you talk about it? Oh, boy, I, I probably won't uh, check all the boxes uh, uh, by Todd or Frank standards. But um, yeah, I mean, this is a men's group that got started almost 10 years ago. Um, it had 
it had some roots in some other bigger men's groups, but, um, but a couple of fr good friends of ours, uh, uh, sort of formalized our group. Um, and, uh, I mean, you know, it's the mission statement now is pretty much, it's, it's a little bit more about just connection, um, which, you know, your book sort of speaks directly to, um, but it's, you know, at its heart, I think it's a bunch of guys who are looking for other men with whom they can maybe be vulnerable, help them maybe on some level and get better at being, this is what I always say, get better at being, you know, a friend, a dad and a husband or whatever, because we don't typically put in work to do that. Um, for all the reasons you mentioned earlier, because life gets in the way because we're overcome by events and, and everything else. So uh, it, 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 it's a, it's a very, um, and it's not all work. It, it, there's a lot of fun too. In fact, I also saw you mention on another interview, something about pickleball. And uh, if you want to come out, we're having our big annual pickleball tournament. I'm the champ. So, you know, you? well, it's doubles. So I'm, I was part of the championship squad. This is new to my life. And like, I, 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 I want to run away from home and be a professional. <laughs> it's a great game. It's a great game. I, so, it started with, with, like, a, with a nose strip playing pickleball. Tape on your mouth. And the train for like now I, now I have it. I can just <laughs> through my nose. And it's funny. I thought I was good at pickleball. And um, when did I go? I, it, like, mid-may i went to la to visit my friend rory the guy that uh, my best friend that disappeared mm -hmm. he uh he's now got a new girlfriend q and um he uh he's traveling american airstream trailer <laughs> like you know like he's yeah. doing that thing now yeah. and the airstream was parked in malibu and his new girlfriend was like hey can i fly you out here we have the same birthday um and surprise him Anyway, while I was there, my brother lives in LA as well. And I went to visit him and he was like, oh, hey, uh, so um, uh, this afternoon I'm playing this thing called pickleball with a couple guys. I was like, Psh, sh, sh. <laughs> yeah, okay, I'll, I'll be there. I'm going to work you guys over. Here, here's the problem, right? Like, uh, my brother was like a big hockey player. He played in the minor leagues. All his buddies in LA, and he has a great friend group, are guys he plays men's league hockey with and they're all like former nhl players and imagine these guys have now all transferred their competitive <laughs> oh yeah pickleball i didn't know any of this right so i show up to play pickleball in el segundo uh and they play doubles which i never played i we only played singles in my gym and uh and like i'm be immediately be i'm not like the world's biggest hockey fan like uh no offense to my brother but um I'm being introduced to guys and I'm like, I recognize their names, you know? And next thing I'm like in like a, you know, group of nine playing pickleball. And uh, I realized, oh, I suck at pickleball. Oh, I have, I have no idea how to play pickleball. They also each had like $300 rackets, which I, I would have thought was absurd, but they play where uh, like, where this is going to go wherever it's at, but like, they, they're just hitting like these tiny little dink oh, yeah. the whole time you yeah. know like, mm -hmm. whereas i was trying to just put it through the the guy's chest in front of me right like uh and, and so <laughs> in in those rackets allow you to hit that you know i mean we literally have the wooden ones that came with the kit from dick sporting goods right like uh -huh. I mean, uh, so anyway um my town is about to renovate the two tennis courts we have here and i'm a, i think i'm gonna go to the meeting and be like <laughs> You know what? If we just turn one of these into four pickleball courts, like I think people might actually show up. Like everyone has a town tennis court that never gets used. That's right. That's pickleball a good call. Is the wave of the future. You yeah. Know? 
Plus you've got that crate of 16,000 nose strips. You gotta, you gotta use at some point. They're right here. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, I need a reason to be a good nose breather. Nasal breather. I have to, I, I know that people are going to be like, why are you making this switch? But I have to ask a quick journalism question. So, yeah, yeah. so, um, so I went to re read some of your columns at the globe and you, you know, I mean, I can't, I can't read your columns on the globe unless I pay a dollar for six months and subscribe to the globe. Right. I get, I mean, I, I totally get um, monetizing your work. Right. Um, so my question is more about how do you feel about kind of the future of journalism? I, I mean, it's what you do. I mean, yeah. and, and are you good with that, that, that I couldn't read your columns no. without paying the globe? I'm not good at all. Cause I mean, I, you know, I've been doing this since, you know, I, college and like it's gone through so many cycles but there was a period there when um i think they give you like one free click or something like that so like mm -hmm. that my original article could go viral as long as you hadn't clicked on any other boston globe stories <laughs> in, the, right. in the month before that right like so that's a barrier that's a thing um and when we went behind the paywall mm -hmm. I, I think every reporter was like nervous you know and and I kind of got it. Like, if you remember when the internet first started, like, um, it, it, the, 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 there was this rush to get eyeballs. The idea was like, if we get eyeballs, then we'll figure out how to monetize mm -hmm. them. Right. As far as journalism uh, goes, all, all we did was train people to stop paying for something they'd always paid a dollar for every day or something like that, you mm -hmm. know? So all of a sudden that money disappears. Um, advertising declined and this one thing that i think people uh fail to appreciate is that it, when craigslist and ebay and all that came about classified advertising disappeared and if you remember when you were a kid you'd go to get the sunday paper like you needed to bring a red wagon with you right it weighed like 34 pounds For sure and within that newspaper like half of it with these classified ads like you wanted to buy a lawnmower you wanted to sell a lawnmower whatever it might be and those people paid $29.95 you know you wanted to get a job you wanted to post a job it was all in there and that Brinks truck just pulled out one day and never came back right yeah. so yeah. you take that away you take away your, your general advertising and they're really like it got to the point where like I mean they're just hemorrhaging money it was like mm -hmm. how do we close the gap and the idea was, which felt very uncomfortable for someone who's writing for the public and kind of believes in the mission, it was like, we have to have less readers, but have those readers be worth more money, right? Mm -hmm. So like, it's not doing us any good if we have a million people read this and they're each only paying a penny, we'd rather there be 100,000 people and they're each paying a dollar, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so it's... Um, so we went behind the paywall and the paywall is not cheap. It's uh, after that six months is up, it's about $30 a month to subscribe yeah. to the Boston Globe. That's yeah. more than any other digital subscription yeah. I have, right? Like, uh, yeah. and so um, the, that was a huge gamble. And what's crazy is that it has worked. Like yeah. it has worked in terms of like stabilizing the bottom line. I mean, I, when I, from the time I got in, in journalism, the newsrooms have been cut by at least a half, right? And now we're growing. The Boston Globe in, in particular is the only newspaper in America that has more subscribers than it did 10 years ago. The only uh, Metro newspaper, you know? And the print subscribers are the old people who are still like, no, I wanna go out to my driveway every day. They're stable. And they're also our best readers. Like the way we usually publish is 
something will go online one day and then it'll go and print the next. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it might even go and print like four days later and they're, they're just completely separate readerships, you know? Mm. So those people, the print, when it goes in print, that's when I get like these long thoughtful emails. These are the people that care that actually read to the end that don't read the first paragraph and then click on the comments to see if it's as predictable as they think it's going to be, you know, like that. Yeah. So that the future of journalism behind a paywall, it seems like the New York times is booming. The globe yeah. is booming. The, the wall street journal journal, they, yeah. they never gave it away for free. They charged right. from the early day of the internet and they've never had any problems. So yeah. like, that's the model. I think it's a, you know, like, you know, hopefully is, creating this idea of you get what you pay for, like certainly you can get the news for free in many, many places, but it's it's more like in now to, to make that $30 of value to you, you know, they're investing in like the investigations, these things that like you, you can't get anywhere else um, in, in bolstering the staff in, in like these areas that like, um, like no one else has, you know, it, it's, I don't sit on in on these high level meetings. I actually skip basically every meeting unless I'm, I'm told I absolutely need to be there. But it, um, I know the financial picture has has gone up and up and up each year. And so the the Globe used to be owned by the New York Times mm -hmm. until I forget when it was, maybe seven years ago. It was bought by John Henry, who's a guy that owns the Boston Red Sox. Mm -hmm. And um, he got plenty of money, right? So he kind of from day one declared like, I'm here to save an institution. And my only goal is to like break even. Like I, mm -hmm. I, I don't need you guys to, to, to make any money. Uh, and it actually took a little bit of time to break even, but now we're, we're so above that we're hiring. You know, we, we're, yeah. there are people coming in and, and that's an exciting thing, like, because I've been in newsrooms where like, you know, there's just that one day when an email goes out and there's like people crying in all different corners. And it's like, now instead it's like these with just people rolling in. Uh, uh, I skipped a party the other night. I, I, I must confess the Globe won a Pulitzer for um, investigative reporting. And they had a party at the Sam Adams like brew house, you know, very couldn't be more Boston, right? Like, of course we'll have it at Sam Adams. Um, and uh, it, it was like thunderstorming. So uh, that was my excuse to not trek into the city. But uh, my friends at Dinko were all like, it was so weird because we hadn't seen each other in a year and a half or wherever, right. however long since COVID. But also like we've hired like a hundred new reporters in that time. And this was their month. They were dying to come meet everyone. It was just like, wow. Like the it, it, like people left there very inspired. Like, oh my gosh, I work for a thriving company. Yeah. And at the same time, like I'm constantly hearing exactly what you say. Do you know how many of my friends are too cheap to pay for my art? Well, <laughs> well, well, wait. And I do, I do pay, I do pay for the news. It, it was just, I just wanted a taste, a little bit more of a taste before I had to commit. That's my, I'm totally supportive of it. And yeah, no, but and, I mean, you live in Chicago. I mean, yeah, you'll give us a buck for six months, but after that, are you really going to pay thirty bucks a month to like keep it, keep in touch with the just, just one time I, until you're reminded that you just paid? When 30 I first bucks, moved yeah. here, I still got the globe when i first moved here um did you want to write for the globe when you were growing up is that something you wanted to do it, it i so the globe was right next to southie for years that you know uh when i first started working there i'd say i don't know i, I yes but also like um i think i i wanted to you know like be like the great american novelist you know i was like a 
you know, Jack Kerouac changed my life. You know, I didn't want, it wasn't Woodward and Bernstein, but um, I started, uh, yeah, proverbial, like, you know, graduate college, tell your parents you're going to write the great American novel that lasts like three weeks. And they're like, you need to get a job, right? Like, so I went down to the like local weekly in Southie and got a job. And like, right away, it was like, I kind of like this. Like, I, yeah. and I think if anything, like, am I a researcher or a storyteller? I think I'm like, if there's some some Southie in me, it's this kind of like street corner storyteller guy. Like I, I, li I like holding court. I like people that can, you know, and uh, and so I didn't think that that was, uh, there was a place for that in journalism. You know, it's it, it, like the Globe in Boston in general is always like the, the, the columnists, like they like, they're like old Irish guy is gonna tell you how it is and supports the cops and all that. So like you could do it in that regard. But I knew enough to know that that was like 30 years of my future, you know, like, and it was like, ah, but I, I always felt like um, just by being sort of uh, like, uh, I think I've always been the guy where editors go, who told him he was allowed to do that? Right? I just like, do it. Like, I don't know. I'm just going to write whatever. Right. And people respond to it. And um, so I, I, I keep my gig, but I can't. I, I think it would be more romantic if I said, I always wanted to work for the Globe and then I went to work there. Like I, I just, um, yeah, it, after a certain point, it definitely became the goal because mm -hmm. I also was coming of age in journalism in the like 2000s when like getting a job at the Boston Globe just wasn't even an option, mm -hmm, right? Sure. It was like, right. it was, I graduated from, I went to journalism school at Columbia and I came out in 2005 and like, to date that era in journalism it was like as we were graduating they're like you guys should start a blog like that's like what that's the future and you're mm -hmm. never going to get a job in mainstream media so like hope hope people start reading your blog and you can sell like you know targeted ads on the side or whatever but um yeah so anyway well so i i remember in your book you talked about wanting to be a novelist i also remember that you you confessed at one point to being a tom waits fan which i applaud yeah. um but this kind of goes back to my question about writing more about anything. Um, I was surprised to hear you deliver that sort of like state of the union of journalism as it being a really healthy place. And obviously you love it, but don't you have access right now? I mean, don't you have opportunity to write more books? I do, but that, then I got to write a book, you know, like uh, <laughs> so I, I, I am, here's what I'm doing right now. I'm actively doing the things that will be in my next book. I'm just a little afraid to committing to it in the sense of like signing contracts and all that. Cause then I'm on, I'm on, then it's work again. And I could tell you what it is. So uh, it's, it's, I'm calling it remembering I'm an animal and it's addressing sort of this, it, and it kind of grew out of some emotions that were happening during the reporting of this original book, which was that, uh, you know, I felt disconnected, you know, uh, I think it's a common thing. And, and this book focused on a disconnection with my friends. But um, as I was doing the research, I kept coming across all these things that they would be like, here's something humans do, like in the sense that you might read, like, here's something like, like uh, chimpanzees do, like a, like a known thing, and, and like, we're not doing it currently, or whatever. And I was just interested in it, like humans are the only animals that like sing together, you know, mm -hmm. like, uh, things like that. So it, it also coincided with a period where I, um, 
I had, I'd gotten a bit of a dad bod, you know, like, you know, I got, I got a little chubby and, uh, and then I did like the cliche thing. Like I signed up for a half marathon then I signed up for me, you know, like I got to burn this off. And, and one day, you know, one morning, as I say, I go down and declare whatever I'm de going to declare to my wife that day. And one day I said, uh, I feel like for the first time since I was like in college, I'm back in like my animal body in the sense that like, you know, you can look at a dog and be like, that dog's too fat or too skinny or whatever. It was like, I feel like I'm just about right. And then something about saying the word animal and reading all these things about stuff that was like uniquely human. I, I started thinking of myself like as an animal and just saying like, remember you're an animal, like don't, don't overcomplicate things. And every time I took action from that statement, like it, it seemed to be like, it led me somewhere great. And so <laughs> so then the project becomes basically I, 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 I'm essentially looking at myself as if I went to the zoo and there was a human in the cage right and next to the cage will be the little plaque that says humans live here and do this and do and eat these things and do whatever and then you look in the cage you go oh it's so sad the gorilla is just sitting there you know like why isn't right. so I, I am basically treating myself as that animal that needs to be released and what's the first thing we do when we're going to release the orca back in the wild, right? We teach them how to get their own food, right? We teach them how to hunt to do these things. So my general thing is like, I'm trying to learn how to like bow hunt and fish and like, and, and like spear, like all these things where I feel like, you know, my ancestors would be embarrassed to look at me and be like, you don't know how to like pluck the feathers off a bird and eat it. And it'd be like, nope, I don't. I know how to like order it on the menu, you know, like, so it, it's a, it's a comic journey. Like, it's not like my goal is to um, uh, never buy meat at the grocery store again, you know, like, uh, but you know, in, in, you know, again, it's called, I'm calling it remembering I'm an animal. Anytime I'm doing something where I'm trying to remember I'm an animal and get in touch with that, you know, it's things as simple as sitting around the fire with the guys. It's like, this is, this is uniquely human, right? Like this is, this is something humans do. This is something will be on the plaque at the zoo about humans, but like, why wasn't I doing this? And why, when I do it, does it feel so good? Does it feel so right? You know, so that's a general journey. I'm thinking of it as a three-year project. It, basically, I'm calling it begin the year's beginnings, beginning again, because I spent a whole year trying to hunt and fish and did not put a piece of protein on my plate. <laughs> <laughs> beginning again, where I'm now going for like lower hanging fruit. I finally did put a piece of protein on the plate, but it was a flounder that I executed while spearfishing, you know, just laying <laughs> on the bottom. <laughs> and uh and uh and then hopefully year three next year will be breakthroughs because I, I i'm i'm so i don't want to like tell if my publisher is listening you didn't hear any of this right like this would all be news to them because there's definitely a lot of when's your next book what's your next book uh but i uh once i like sign on the dotted line then all of a sudden life sometimes almost becomes like a, uh, you know, like I got to do that because that's on a post-it note on the wall. And it's not that that's false. That's how I've always weirdly had to live my life. I have to go out and find stories. You know, I have to be deliberate about it. Um, 
but uh, it, it, uh, I'm, I'm afraid of, you know, committing because then when I commit, it comes with like a deadline. And, you yeah, know, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, if, if you decide you want us to cut that piece to protect you from your publisher uh, or your protection. No, no, publisher, no, that's fine. Yeah. yeah, no. But also, I'll just go ahead and say it. I feel like there might be fodder in there for that novel that you've always dreamed about writing. I mean, yeah. Honestly. I, I, it, it, yeah, I, I envy like anyone that could just gets gets to make it up. Yeah, but um, yeah, no, this one feels like I, I like that it's true, and I like mm-hmm. that um, this part of it anyway, you know, and I like that it's having like weirdly positive impacts everywhere. Like I don't know, you you were both nodding your head as I was talking about this whole thing. Do you feel yeah are you having any of these connection feelings? I've I've had numerous conversations that occurred to me one day, at least for me, that we take shit I people around me take shit so seriously. And we're animals mm. that are conscious. And so we think every because of that consciousness, do we think everything is so damn serious? And yeah. and I don't want to minimize stuff because I'm in my family, I'm accused as being a minimizer, but um we are just animals. I mean, yeah. we we women birth other animals, we shit. I mean, it's just like we're I mean, oh, so we deny but it. we have this consciousness <laughs> and we think, oh, we're something pretty special. We're really special. And yeah, we can go to the moon and we can do all this other stuff, make a Peloton like in the back. Chris is in, but yeah, I mean, at the in end, the end in the end, in I don't, I don't, th- I don't think those, those things are incongruous, right? I like, I feel like I spend all this time in my head. I'm always trying to think of better ways to do things. We, as, as sort of, you know, uh, as humans, we're always trying to continuously improve. And and I hear what you're saying, right? Like that, like can we not just embrace sort of like the the, the simpler parts of our of our evolution? But yeah, the um, beauty and simplicity of life. We, I mean, yeah. we get all these thoughts that come up out of nowhere, and we listen to them, and you know, it can really mess us up. Oh, I mean. We are so messed up right? like, yeah. for, for no good reason. If None. we just chilled the hell out, it'd be like, you know, like a lot of stuff is going really well right now. Right? Like, yeah, that's true. That's true. We focus on the negative all the time. Yeah. Um, I'm going to add that to my existing list, a long list of questions that I wanted to ask you, Billy. We I might know. have to ask you back on next time. Yeah. Let's have a beer. Yeah. Um, or, or two, <laughs> yeah, yeah. we can each build a bonfire and, uh, uh, virtually, but, um, but we are at time and okay. I want to respect your time. Yeah. Um, so, but there's a lot more ground to cover if you, if you ever be game to talking to a couple of Chicago boys. Oh no, I feel like we just got started. I'm, I'm a little sad. You're cutting me off here. I was like, well, we're, we're done. I got to go back to my real life now and all that bullshit. Like, well, uh, I, I have to go hunt for dinner. I don't know what you two clowns are doing. So uh, yeah, I, I choked mean, it down I before probably we go, but like, um, yeah, no, I feel like uh, you guys feel like, yeah, I wish we, we did meet in real life. You know, what's funny is my buddy um, who lives, he's going to kill me for not knowing the name of it. It's a town it's like Shermerville, you know, like that uh, all the John Hughes movies are filmed in uh, the fictional town of Shermerville, somewhere in the Chicago suburbs. Do you know what I'm talking about? I like, mean, it could be anything. It could be Evanston or it could well, be Matt, Oak Park or it's uh, it's where like the Save Ferris water tank is. Anyway, um, he uh, Will Will Met. I thought, oh, yeah. What's the name of it? 
Lake Lake Lake. Uh, Doesn't matter. That dude's not in your Dunbar one. Right. No, <laughs> right. no, he is actually. He, uh, he um, and he he's mentioned book. Anyway, he started a, a group out there, like uh, I think triggered by like you know my my, my whole thing. Um, oh. uh, but but I don't know why I brought that up. But he's somewhere in the same state as you, so it's like, do you know him? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, small town Chicago. Yeah, white well, guy I, in the village. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't think of the name of the town. Plays pickleball. Uh, probably well, does. You know, I I need to say just in case people didn't figure it out from our conversation, uh, we need to hang out. is a great book. It's it's really entertaining, um, and it's really emotional too. Quite honestly, and and I loved it. Um, and really so glad that you came to chat with us. Oh, thank you guys for having me. This was a lot of fun. This is Chris. Thanks again for joining us on this episode of If You've Come This Far. And this is Sean. Remember to check us out at menliving.org.